Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a beautifully sunny day in Los Angeles today. Now you all probably wonder why I'm always giving the weather when I open up this podcast, but being a farm girl from Ohio, I uh, was taught to keep my eye on the sky. So it's something I always like to do and especially reminds me of my dad and he could tell me what to wear and what kind of weather was coming in the next couple of days by doing that. So I love when we get sun. I love when we get gray. I love when we get rain. Today happens to be a beautiful, beautiful day. So today, my guest is my pastor from my church. He's also becoming a very dear friend of mine, which was quite unexpected. His name is Reverend or Pastor Kyle Jokum. Kyle's originally from Pennsylvania, Ohio. We were immediately clicked when we found that out. He moved to California in 2006 after working with inner city youth in Berlin, Germany for years. Went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, and is the former youth director at Iglesias Hollywood Youth and college pastor at the Presbyterian Church in Granada Hills. But he's actually been the pastor at Silver Lake Community Church for the past five years, which has really been just, and we'll talk about my story connecting with him in a second, but I want to welcome you, Pastor Kyle, although I'm going to go with you as Kyle because I think you've just gotten me in that way, so I hope you're okay with that, but welcome. Thank you, Juliet. It's so nice to be on this podcast with you and get a chance to have a good conversation. Well, I am super grateful of your support, and you've been a supporter of me personally, my wife, Jen, in so many beautiful ways, so I'm just, I'm really just grateful for you to to really have this conversation with us today, because I love our our conversations about God and healing, and you've been part of my healing process as well. So I want to kind of want to jump in. So you know, your church came to our attention in our home when there was a shooting at a Trader Joe's down the street a few years ago, and you know, it all taken victims in, and I was so moved by that. I think I was moved by the fact that you couldn't be in a more loving, safe place than a church after a tragedy mm. like that. Were you like questioned by the police or anything? Or can you talk to me a little bit about that that moment of just being the center grounding point for that situation? Sure. That was a seminal moment for our congregation in a variety of ways. I, at the time, was only a part-time transitional pastor at the church, was filling in on a part-time basis while they looked for a full-time pastor and hadn't even decided yet that I wanted to throw my hat in the ring to be the full-time person. But it happened in the afternoon on a Saturday and our office administrator, Stephanie, was here at the church when she got a knock at the door and there were 
police at the door asking if they could use the church's facilities to bring witnesses and hostages who had been released and a variety of people for the extensive questioning that had to happen. And everyone came into the building and Stephanie jumped to work doing what she does best, which is to help make the space welcoming for people. Amazing human, Stephanie. It's an amazing human being. She sure is, yes. And it was actually while everyone, employees and shoppers and bystanders were milling about in the sanctuary and the lounge of the church that then they got the word that the manager of the Trader Joe's, Melly Carrado, who they knew had been shot, had actually died of her Mm -hmm. wounds. And that really caused a lot of instant trauma Mm -hmm. for everyone on top of what had already happened. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't here for that. But Stephanie immediately stopped and called me to come over to the church that I needed to come over from my home. And so I came over and just found a group of people who were in that moment of trauma and fear and anger and all the things, all the emotions that go along with it. And I was also immediately aware that this was a group of people that for the most part probably were never in a church on any kind of regular basis, or at least not currently were. It's just the typical kind of folks that are at a a Trader Joe's in Silver Lake. And my heart just went out to them and there was just a thick air of despair. And so... I rarely do this, but I have a what we call a stole, which is kind of like a long decorative scarf that we put on as pastors sometimes in more traditional church settings that indicates our role as servants of Jesus Christ. And I put it over my shoulders and I just started walking around, making myself available to people to pray and and talk. And I, I found more than a few people that wanted to just ask me questions and needed help and wanted to just say how they were feeling. You know, in those situations, you don't really know exactly what to do. So you just do what you do best, which for me as a pastor, I think is just trying to listen to people. So that was the beginning of a journey for our church. Yeah, I was going to say that it was a big step. I mean, the more I've thought about this and kind of putting questions together for you today, just what a powerful moment of your being selected for that moment. I mean, you know, here you're questioning, should you be the person? And yet almost like there was a sign that just came down and said, you are to be this person and here you are now. And so I know there's just so many people that adore you and are so grateful. And I know mm. for us, you know, we, we, it drew us, Jen and I, and mm. especially coming from the Catholic church, which is not always uh, looked greatly upon to change up a denomination, but we were just looking Mm. for openness and that struck us on how it was handled so much. It just, it really struck our hearts. And so we came to check out the church and uh, we were met Mm. at the front door by a homeless man and his pit bull. And I believe his name was Jeffrey. Oh yes. Oh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey. And we were like, wow, this is amazing. We were, it just kept adding on to the, mm. to the love we started feeling from this, this building it started and then it started with the people. And, 
And then in the middle of your very first service, you pulled out a whiteboard and explained expectations. And I thought, wow, okay, this guy's speaking my language. <laughs> he's, he's actually he's actually got a slideshow <laughs> and, and a whiteboard, whiteboard language. on how, uh, and that's what I do for a living. So I was like, okay, I, I wow, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm totally digging this. So, hmm. but, you know, I want to, I want to go back to, you know, someone that has to go through this trauma, or obviously people had to go through the legal system after this trauma, right? And were you ever questioned mm, by the police mm-hmm. or was anybody there ever questioned? We were not questioned by the police nor anyone in the congregation because we weren't witnesses Witness, to yeah. anything that happened. However, I did, as a result of being our church being a part of the, the response and an immediate like candlelight vigil a week later and then a one-year memorial a year later as a result of being involved in that i cultivated a good relationship with the family of the woman who was killed ultimately discovered by a bullet from the lapd and walking through that the legal processes with them and their frustrations and reliving the trauma over and over and all that kind of stuff that has been very eye-opening for me so that that's you're stepping right into where i want to go it's like because i want to talk to you about going through the legal system through the lens of prayer and faith you know which most Mm. people would not put these two worlds together but in my experience there's a lot of room for forgiveness faith healing you know that has to go through the process my own personal experience, let alone my professional experience, where I've seen this kind of pain or suffering or anger, like you talked about. So what are the steps you take with someone like this, like this family that have to relive or go through a frustrating process like the legal process to find some peace? What I observed in this particular instance, which is really the primary example from my career as a pastor of walking alongside people or being in relationship with people who have gone through a significant legal event, I guess, you know, this family going up against the LAPD in a civil suit. What I think I learned, number one, is that what you don't want to do is lend advice. Mm -hmm. And what you do want to do is help facilitate people's emotions. When I would sit with specifically this I would find myself often wanting to say things to redirect them or to explain the LAPD's side of a situation or try to convince them to feel something other than what they were feeling or think something other than what they were thinking. And thankfully, due to some good pastor training from Fuller, I was able to recognize that that's what my instinct was telling me to do and then to to set that aside and instead just ask, continually ask questions about for to help them explore what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what underlies it, what fears underlie it. So that was something that I learned about being with people in that setting. And another one is, you know, for people experiencing the kind of pain they experienced not only the pain of the loss of a daughter, a sister, but also the pain of feeling like a government organization had unjustly taken this person from them and was refusing to take responsibility for it. That was their feeling. Mm-hmm. Is that just the what we might call the ministry of presence, just sitting with people and letting them know, I'm here with you. I don't, I don't know what to say. 
I don't feel what you feel, but I'm here with you. You're not alone in this. I found that to be way more helpful than anything that I really was able to say in the end. You know, Kyle, what's got this message coming to me that this is something that's so beautiful about you and the gift that you're giving others. And I don't know if anybody, I'm sure, hope people tell you this all the time, but you are so empathetic and compassionate. And instead of being, what do I want to say, preaching or pushing or putting your agenda on someone else, it's just incredible. I mean, I think that's what drew us into this community with you Mm -hmm. and your congregation in a sense is just that to have that in a moment of need still shows faith. But how do you work with someone to keep their faith in that without being too putting your agenda on them? I'm actually in a book study right now with a group of guys for a book written by an Eastern Orthodox theologian named David Bentley Hart, who wrote a great book about the the responses of people from religious circles, specifically from Christian circles, to the tsunami in Southeast Asia from several years ago, and how one of the knee-jerk reactions of a lot of us faith community leaders when something awful happens is to try to try to explain away God's actions or God's inactions, and to try to try to kind of help people hold on to their faith by sometimes a lot of kind of complex and circuitous explanations and cherry-picking Bible verses to somehow explain that this horrible thing has happened and God played a role, but don't give up your faith because somehow it all makes a lot of sense. And this author, Professor Hart, he really hammers the idea that death and suffering don't make sense. And over and over the Bible and God and even the words of Jesus affirm it. And so, any attempt by us to try to help people in their faith by making sense of the pain and the suffering and the despair and the hopelessness is foolish and a lot of ways reflects our own insecurities and fears and are just sort of trying to manipulate these people. Mm. And if they feel a little bit better Mm -hmm. about you know, this this desperate, hopeless situation they're in, then that'll also maybe make me feel a little mm, bit better about it too. And so, what I don't do is try to pull out a bunch of Bible verses, try to explain away God's actions to people in that kind of setting. I really don't know why it happened. It mm-hmm. makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have happened. Your definition of true selflessness, that is a... That's a very difficult thing to achieve because I think we all have our insecurities, intuitions, want to be liked, you know, want to be believed, especially mm-hmm. in a position of, I think anybody being human um, wants to be in that position. But I find it to be so amazing how selfless you are to be able to what in my meditation world and and the things that I've done is what I call hold space. I think which we're talking the same kind of language, just different verbiage, but it's just not about you, right? Now, what it comes down to is sometimes being there for the person who's in need. Yeah. I think in a way, you know, I've been talking about this more recently at church, but in sort of a strange way, selfless, cultivating selflessness 
is a form of self-preservation. Once you recognize that self-centeredness, selfishness, self-pity, self-delusion, all the self-stuff actually creates a bunch of chaos and damage for your own life and others. So the more you can more you can acknowledge, oh, I'm thinking about me first here. Let me let that go. The more you can cultivate selflessness, you're actually doing yourself a favor <laughs> in the end. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it. When you least expect it, you are getting all the gifts, right? And you're not expecting right. it. So it's, but why, why do you think it's so hard for people in the kind of, and I want to say legal setting or a situation like this family, to talk about their faith or talk about God? I mean, I, I, it's not something I'm going to walk into a corporate room and all of a sudden be talking about, well, you know, is it because it's such an individual belief system? Wow, sir, that's a great question. Certainly, there are many different reasons why people in legal settings and people in these kinds of situations would want to avoid talking about God and spirituality, maybe specifically, let's say, God. One thing I think is that I suspect is that talk about God and God's will and where's God in all this does a couple things that feel distasteful. One of them is it makes me less, it makes me powerless. It like removes my power. Somehow now I'm relying on this entity outside of myself whose character I don't really know and whose ways and means have already betrayed me by allowing or making this awful thing to happen. Now somehow I'm supposed to rely on this one to help me out of this situation mm -hmm. that maybe they got me into. Like mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. I'm just then this this boat adrift on a sea of the the deity's will and uh, I don't like that. I don't want to be in that situation. And on the other hand, obviously, religion specifically, and God maybe generally, has been used as a tool of oppression for people. Mm. And sometimes people feel like, whether it's a generalized idea of karma, or whether it's specifically some Judeo-Christian or you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant idea of God's will or predestination that somehow talking about that kind of stuff almost makes the situation seem more hopeless because it's like, there's nothing I can do about it. It's all in God's hands or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas in these moments, you know, we want to, like the family wanted, I don't want to speak for them, but, you know, if I were them, I would want revenge. I would want mm -hmm. justice. Mm -hmm. I would want to be paid back for what had been taken from me. And I, I have this sense, especially going up against, you know, if you're someone who's in a court proceeding against not another person, but but a corporation or, you know, a law enforcement agency or something like that, you feel like it's a David and Goliath situation, you know, and I, I'm already feeling kind of helpless and I don't want to give up the little bit of power I have by like putting it out there into the the fanciful supernatural ether for mm -hmm. some, you know, gumball machine god to maybe help me out. When you talk about this, I can't help but think of my mom, who very, very uh, strict in her faith of being Catholic. And as you know, my, I had a brother that was killed when I was a kid. And many years later, um, we asked her, you know, what, how did she hang on to her faith? Like, how did she actually do that? And she said she just, that's all she had. And she said, you know, she when she 
goes. She has a lot of questions. Why me? Why him? Why our family? But I've always found that that ability to have that kind of faith within a situation of like when my brother was shot, just still to this day kind of blows my mind. And, and yet the unknown, like you said, this entity that's unknown, to have that kind of faith is just something I was brought up in. Just a, Mine's in a different capacity, but that faith is... Do you find people that in their darkest hours can have faith? Definitely you do. But I think those are the people that have cultivated their faith and a spiritual life. And I guess we could say a relationship with God mm-hmm. prior to the event. Mm. I think if I think it's probably rare for people who don't have an an active spiritual life who don't have a sense of being connected to their higher power. As we say in the 12 steps, uh, haven't cultivated conscious contact with their higher power. When a, a traumatic event happens to suddenly that that spirituality, that connection comes alive and it's wholly positive and trusting Mm -hmm. and that they're suddenly willing to abandon themselves to the will and the care of this power greater than themselves. That's something that has to be cultivated, you mm-hmm. know. Just like in, you know, in the United States, if there is a disaster that happens somewhere, we're able to respond and bring positive things out of it because we've prepared in advance with local and national organizations. But if we're not prepared for those events, then the tragedy just compounds. Mm, very, that's a great analogy. It's a really, really great analogy on how that I don't think most people think of it like that. I think it's more, you know, where's God now kind of concept, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, if God's always, or spirit, or your entity has been with you, it's easier to ask for help versus all of a sudden, like, what's what's going on? Like, you know, so that's a great analogy. Can I ask, what was your mother's faith like before the death of your brother? It was just as strong. I mean, we were brought up, you know, mm-hmm. In the Catholic Church, we were brought up in Catholic school, so she had that preparation. She she was raised, you know, Catholic. She went to Catholic school when she was young. Spent a lot of time with nuns who ended up becoming some of her favorite people. She still talks about today. So, she's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Is is and teaching us children to that faith is so important in your life. Some type of faith. You know, I know it's not always perfect for her that we're not all in the Catholic Church, but you know, the fact that we've got faith and I call it the spiritual pull. When I fall off my spiritual pull, I need to get back on my pole and I need to hold on to, you know, and and, and work that. Mm-hmm. So um, she's been very um that's been a constant in all I think all of our lives is even when she comes to visit, we make sure that the church schedule's on the table and that kind of thing. So um mm. but I want to talk about some transformation and healing. I know when Jen and I were looking around for churches and we were looking for community. And can you talk to me about how healing happens with community and what what community plays a part in someone's healing you make me think about a member of our community a former pastor who lost her husband during the pandemic and she acknowledges herself that the instinct in the midst of that grief is to withdraw Mm -hmm. from people is almost like when a person 
is experiencing hypothermia, right? They get frostbite because the blood is pulling to the inner side of the body to protect the inner organs, mm -hmm. right? And so the exterior parts begin to die because they don't have that lifeblood. In the same way, she described that like her instinct was to not answer phone calls or emails mm -hmm. or text people back because you want to protect yourself. The pain inside is so intense, mm -hmm. you just like need... There's some sense of needing to pull all of my mental, emotional, even spiritual resources inward in some sort of self-protection. And the advice that she got was just say yes. Hmm. Just whenever someone asks you to go to tea, say yes. Whenever someone asks if you want to go for a walk around the apartment complex say yes whenever someone asks if you want to come to church with them say yes just say yes because all of those things are about about instead of withdrawing staying out in those relationships and moving out into community because then you are leaning on in the midst of the weakness of grief that you're leaning on other people and drawing strength and those those resources that so quickly get depleted inside mm -hmm. of us, hope and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, what we describe as the fruits of the spirit. Grief is just like such so hyperactive that it sucks all the juice out of all those fruits oh, yeah. so quickly that we need other people to keep pouring into us so that those fruits, the all those things that make life worth living make it possible to go on those need to be full and we can't do that ourselves because all of our resources are being taken up inside with this grief so that's why community is so important and at the same time you know we saw this during the pandemic that right when people need community the most it becomes the hardest for them to engage mm -hmm. folks that i know who are going through divorce I'm thinking of uh, some women I know who are going through divorce and custody battles, two separate women. And the right when they need people around them the most, it becomes the hardest to say yes mm -hmm. and be a part of community. And so as much as I would want to say, oh, the way you get through grief is, you know, just saying this set of prayers every morning or make sure you do this Bible study over the course of the week really it's being in community. And like we said before, with with how does your faith help you through grief, community is something that has to be cultivated before the trauma happens, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have already isolated yourself and then a tragedy happens, who is it that you're going to say yes to? Who are you going to lean on? That is, you know, wow. You just hit on something for me where that's exactly what we did. We, we just lost our dog, which I talked about earlier in uh, – and we did. We withdrew. I mean, it's just even to try and get on, get to church, or just you know, we just completely just went in, and it's it's almost like a natural instinct in that sense. Mm. And to get out and show your vulnerability, I think that's another thing that I mm. talked to is about how healing can be very vulnerable, uh, you, or you are putting yourself out in a, in a vulnerable position to heal mm. in front of others and to break down crying in front of someone you don't really know that well in the congregation mm -hmm. or, or, you know, in the community. And it's, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. there's a vulnerability that comes along that, that I've just been asking mm -hmm. myself to draw on my faith and just give me some strength today to get through this because I love when we come, you know, we get, we get to church, especially if I'm not working and we're there and you feel this 
this, like you said, the juice. I, I feel the juice for the week. You know, it's like there's something really <laughs> great about our community in that sense. So, can we talk a little, just a little bit about prayer? When you when you work with others, let's say this family, do you pray with them? Do you ask them to pray, or how do you approach prayer with people? I have been a. I'm always trying to be sensitive to where people are at with faith. Um, and I don't want to, I, I probably am a little too much of a people pleaser. So sometimes I will answer questions for people and not even ask them, you know, like, oh, they probably don't want me to pray. So I won't ask. I'm trying to get better <laughs> at it. I, I have prayed with them before, um, but I always ask people, what do you need prayer for? What do you have a sense of that you're lacking that you would need? And to be honest, the prayer that I pray a lot with people and I pray for them when I'm with them is the serenity prayer. Mm. And we tend to think of the serenity prayer as mostly for like alcoholics who are trying to stop drinking. But the serenity prayer is a powerful series of three requests to God that I think can help people in any circumstance. And especially for people who are grieving, of course, the serenity prayer is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference between things I can and can't change. And when people are grieving, they need serenity, not the sense of like everything just going back to the way it was and being happy and peaceful, but serenity in the sense of that, that thing deep inside that says, that wants to fly apart. The world is chaotic and wrong and awful, wants to fly apart. And, mm -hmm. and that thing that causes people who are in grief to lash out or do mm -hmm. self-destructive things, they need serenity instead, uh, that ability to just sit in the difficult emotions and the pain and just accept this thing has happened and there's nothing I can do to change it. But that God can give them a serenity in the midst of that that can not only prevent them from doing things in the midst of grief that can compound it, but also can help them on the healing process. And the courage is exactly what you were talking about with uh, vulnerability. You know, I remember that after your dog died, you and Jen, I think it was Christmas morning, brought your other dog <laughs> to church that Sunday. Yeah, and in awesome. a way, which obviously we love dogs at the church. And so... But you didn't necessarily know that or, you know, mm -hmm. you didn't know maybe how people would respond if you brought this dog or, you know, even coming to church, as you indicate, you know, you're like, oh, we don't want to do anything. But that vulnerability, the courage to come and bring the dog to church, like that is something that I think comes from the spirit of God moving in us. That's something that I can change, right? There are things that I can change when I'm in the midst of tragedy and grief. And one of them is that I can... I can change and choose to be vulnerable. I can change and choose to have the courage to cry in front of my friend. Mm -hmm. I can choose, I can have the courage to ask someone to meet me for coffee or to bring me pizza or mm -hmm. ask for the things that I know I need, but maybe have a little too much pride to ask for. Right. You know, the, um, the serenity prayer, my grandmother gave me a plaque when I for my first communion back in the 60s. Oh. <laughs> and that used to hang over wow, my bed. Wow, interesting communion gift. Right? Uh, 
Very mm. interesting, huh? But she, but it was always just a prayer. You know, I didn't even realize even until yeah. I got older that it was connected. To, it was just kind of a prayer in our home that mm-hmm. hung over my that plaque, plaque hung over my bed for as long as I could remember. And uh, you know, after a while, you're just like, oh yeah, it's just a plaque. But as you get older, you're like, that was kind of a gift sitting over my head every day at the age of you know. 10, 11, 12 years old, it's uh, to think about the messaging that around us. And that's why to me, prayer is so important. And prayer is such a, it gets locked down into a definition sometimes, but I think just asking God is a prayer. I think mm. just asking for peace is a prayer. It doesn't have to be some big formal that's right. process, right? That's right. I, I, I do think as you're talking about prayer, that the aspect of prayer that often gets overlooked is the idea of just sitting in silence. Um, and being quiet, quieting our minds. I think of grief as something that in a lot of ways puts your mind on overdrive, which wears you out in other ways, right? Mm-hmm. But prayer, just being able to cultivate silence in the presence of God is something that can help in a variety of ways, but especially in the midst of grief. So we say, God be with me in the midst of this pain, but how do you feel God with you if you never stop and and try to get a sense of God being with you? Right, right, because we're all running so fast and running so quick and filling our lives with so much, I say, craziness that, you know, when, when, the, when the silence comes, it's very uncomfortable for people sometimes, you know, to be in that place. And that's where I think even coming to a service is nice where it's just, you know, we just, I love you start your services with let's just take a couple breaths. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. you know s- stop and that that's just that exercise alone is just such a great way to start to just decompress right so we're gonna we're gonna mm-hmm. start winding down here but i like to ask most of my guests do you think healing is a choice there's a story from jesus life where he goes to this pool that is in the middle of Jerusalem, and there are all these cripples and unwell people that are lying around the pool, and every now and then the the waters of the pool will be stirred, and the first person or the first couple people who get in the pools can be healed, And, and there's one person there who, because of his infirmity, whenever the waters are stirred, whatever that means, uh, he's not able to get into the pool, and so just for years, he's lying there unwell, and Jesus comes to him and asks him, what do you want? And that is profound to me because he, on the one hand, we would think, well, why does Jesus even ask that? Obviously, he's here because he wants to be healed by the waters of this pool. And yet, as I think all of us know, there are people who the grief sets in and does something. It becomes their identity. Mm-hmm. It slakes some insidious mm-hmm. inside need. Mm-hmm. It it wraps you so tightly in emotions and those emotions feel better than maybe the numbness that you had been feeling before mm-hmm. in life that you may actually not really want to be healed. Which is to say you don't you're not ready to do the work that it takes to be healed. Mm. Or to enter into the unknown of what will it look like for me to let go of this pain, this resentment, this fear, this anger, this wound, you know, uh, what will that be? Who will I be? 
how how can I? What will people think if I let this? If I drop this court case, or if I forgive that person, or oh, you know what what? It's too unknown. It's mm-hmm. easier just to remain in the stasis of the pain. And I'm not saying that for other people. I'm saying that for myself. How often have I sat in bitterness? And told people I wanted to be well and wanted to get past and find someone new or something like that. And yet just found myself sitting in the pain, the warm, familiar pain. So in that sense, healing is a choice. Mm-hmm. I think you have to choose. And I think for some people, it's not an easy choice. Right. right. And it's so, you know, like, you know, so many things you say I can relate to in that sense of just, it, you know, for years and years, my identity was a sibling who lost a brother. It was, mm. you know, this crisis, and and as you heal and move on from that, you realize that's not really who I am in it at all. <laughs> you know, I'm, mm. I'm. That was something that was, you know, a, a path in my life that was given to me to learn from. And then now, what can I learn from this? And how mm. can I take that in a positive direction? And how can spirit mm. help me move that in a way that now helps others? And that's why I try to look at the healing process. What am I learned in it to help somebody else? And so, um, so I really appreciate you doing this today with me, uh, Kyle. This has really been absolutely, yeah. absolutely uh, incredible. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. So you got my my juices flowing about a whole bunch of things, and now I'm turning over all this stuff in my mind. So, so you know, I'm not a I'm not a big one to quote scripture, but I do believe there's so many lessons we can learn in it, and I will say for the record, that my favorite quote is Corinthians 13. There are three things that will endure, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And I thank everyone for coming on and listening to this amazing conversation today. And I just want you to go out and don't forget to spread the love. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.